News Roundup, July 2016. You're listening to SpexCast. Welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and this episode is going to be Augie, TJ, and Drew taking you through some current events from the month of July 2016, discussing it, sharing the news with you, and keeping you guys up to date on what's happening in the space industry. Our schedule hasn't really been regular for this summer, but that's because we're all spread out. We're still working on episodes for our Specs Summer Series, and Coming up next, right after this episode airs, will be an interview we did with Brendan Byrne. He's a space reporter and journalist for WMFE Orlando, and he also hosts the podcast Are We There Yet?, which is another space exploration podcast talking about things involved in getting humans to Mars. It's a really great show. Check it out. Another amazing interview we had the opportunity to talk to astronaut Chris Hadfield. We asked him all sorts of questions. We did our best to ask unique things and get um, really interesting answers from him. So stay tuned. And one really quick thing before we start the show, we are in the process of organizing an interview with Tori Bruno. He is the CEO and president of the United Launch Alliance. And we're going to have him on the show, ask him a few questions. And as always, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at RIT Specs. And let us know what you think about this Specs Summer Series. We've been experimenting a lot over this summer, uh, bringing you new content, uh, doing things a little bit differently. Let us know what you think. It's really important to us uh, that we are actually making you know, podcasts that you guys like to listen to. That's the important thing. And we look forward to hearing from you. All right, guys, take it away. You're listening to SpexCast, the space exploration podcast brought to you by the Space Exploration Research Group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. R&T Specs. Joining us, we have TJ. Hello. As well as Drew. Hello. And I am August. Phil could not join us today. So we're going to do some news updates and talk about what's new in the space area. I am currently interning at a company in the United States that does SAR satellites, so synthetic aperture radar. It's radar rather than optical observation satellites. And the ESA and China have been cooperating for a while now on a program called Dragon, which uses European satellites and Chinese satellites with uh, SAR capabilities to observe specific areas of China. And they are extending this partnership until 2020. The third phase just finished and they're going into the fourth. Uh, it's just a cool partnership, and I think you know, if you read into what I've said in previous episodes, I am all about international cooperation with space. So I just think this is really cool that they're continuing this mission. It's extended to 2020. The images are really cool if you like looking at SAR images. It's not at all like looking at uh, normal optical images. There's a lot of false color involved, but um, it has recorded the water table changes in this lake which had been reducing for a while, then we had that, the whole El Nino effects were going on for months. And uh, this lake, the water table rose again. So I don't know, it's just very interesting to see what SAR is capable of. And it's good again to see continued cooperation between international partners in space. Can you do a rundown of the basics of uh, synthetic aperture radar like imaging? Synthetic aperture radar uses the radio waves bouncing off the earth, you send them down with some sort of feed 
collect them back as you know they return and you get a lot more information from radar images than you do from optical like it can measure the water content in plants using using radar there's a lot more potential in terms of what radar is capable of they had it on endeavor at least the space shuttle had it that's i'm looking at the wikipedia page right now and they've got shots of the earth um, basically showing a volcano and you can see like the different vegetation zones in different colors and that's based on you know the echo that the the radio receives so it's pretty cool stuff all right well i guess let's move on to the next story i've got four here that phil found us for uh, the first one is reaction engines got a new 10 million dollar contract from the european space agency uh 10 million dollars to continue working on their saber and engine so for those who don't know, uh, Reaction Engines is trying to build a vehicle called Skylon, which is a single-stage-to-orbit space plane that has two Sabre engines. And what's unique about this is that instead of carrying all the fuel and oxidizer you need to go into space with you when you take off, their engines are kind of a hybrid design that can pull oxygen out of the air. Uh, the big challenge with that is that air is a gas and the percentage of oxygen in that rapidly decreases in altitude and so they have to take supersonic and hypersonic air that's getting heated with friction in the inlet and then cooling that down into a liquid and then pumping that into the engines so they successfully finished their intercooler which takes gaseous oxygen and turns into liquid oxygen within millions of a second and that awarded them a new contract. So that's slowly progressing. It's a really cool technology. And we'll probably get into more space plane stuff later in this episode. Yeah, from a mechanical standpoint, or like mechanical engineering standpoint, that's awesome. Just that whole concept, whoever thought of that. And then the fact that they've gotten it to work is incredibly impressive. Yeah, it's Skyline is a really interesting uh, vehicle in that it wants to be... A you know kind of plane, a space plane that can land land at airports, take off from airports, but it's just ginormous. It's got these ginormous engines on engine pods on the side. It has a huge body because it needs that very high mass reaction to get single stage to orbit, and it has a relatively small payload. So it's you know a huge vehicle when it takes off, but I think it's probably like a light launcher or a medium class orbital launcher. Um, but it's really, it's a really impressive piece of engineering, I think. I wanted to talk about Moon Express. Um, most people might not have heard about this, but um, this is a company that's trying to get to the moon. They'd be the first private company to, ever to do so. And what's awesome about Moon Express is that they want to do so next year. And they've just gotten approval um, from the FAA, the White House, and the State Department uh, to actually launch to the moon. Uh, there's the International Treaty um, that they're going to abide by. And then, of course, there are what we've talked about in the previous episodes when we had Anthony Hennick together, all those uh, laws and basically the way the political landscape is now. If they go to the moon, anything they bring back can be theirs to keep. It will be owned by the private entity. Um, and one of the reasons they're going is because of the Google Lunar X Prize, uh, which was basically, it's funded by Google. It's a prize for the first private company to land a, fund, a privately funded robotic spacecraft on the moon, uh, have it travel 500 meters, and then transmit back high-definition video and images. 
Um, they ended up extending the deadline. I think it was originally supposed to be in 2015. Uh, they were going to extend it until December of 2017 if at least one team could secure a launch contract um, by the end of 2015. And two teams secured the contract. Uh, one of them was Moon Express, who's going to launch on a Rocket Labs rocket. And the other company is Space IL, which is going to launch via SpaceX. Um, so they're hopefully going to launch next year. Um, it looks like Moon Express is, is still on, uh, on track to do so. Uh, the Verge just wrote a great article about it uh, today. And so I encourage you to check that out if you're interested in, in more. Just Google Moon Express, The Verge. And basically what's, what's unique about it is that since no private companies have ever landed on any interplanetary body and legislation isn't yet ready uh, for this kind of um, policy, they're working on it, but obviously policy takes a long time. What they've done already is come up with their own uh, basically baseline policy and they said, look, this is exactly what we're going to do. We're going to work with the FAA. We're going to work with you know, all these different organizations to make sure we abide by all these treaties. And they've kind of laid the groundwork uh, for such policy, um, which I think is just really interesting and fascinating. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see if uh, real policy will come out of this uh, when really they only developed it just so they could go themselves. So this is an American company? So Moon Express is uh, just a group of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. Um, the other company, Space IL, so they basically uh, paid a deposit to launch on a Falcon 9 for 2017, and it, and it looks like they're from Israel. Interesting. Israel Space Agency. So are, is Moon Express's plan to land on the moon, complete the Google requirements, and then yep. collect samples and return? No. So their, their first rocket is just going to uh, land on the moon, you know, collect the prize money, get all the free PR that they're going to get from winning the competition. And then they're actually trying to create a business out of it where within, I think they said by 2020, the CEO said he wants to launch another one with an actual robotic lander that will collect sample and return that to Earth. Um, so this is basically just a way for them to achieve um, the, the milestone and receive the prize money, um, which I think is great, especially awesome that Google is, is, is funding this and, and totally backing it. Yeah, I think it's really cool. The Lunar X Prize is really awesome. And we're seeing with the Chinese uh, Jade Rabbit rover uh, renewed interest of you know sending things to the moon, soft landing them, and kind of roving around, which I think is really cool because we have such better cameras, such better transmission technology. Like the U.S. and Russia landed on the moon in the 60s with landers that had film cameras that you know they took photos and they had to develop them there and then digitize them and broadcast them back. And now we have so much better technology. We can get a lot better, not only images, but all sorts of telemetry and scientific data easily and remotely. Yeah, it'll be exciting to see. Well, I'm sure we'll do an episode again on it, maybe in a couple months as, it, as they get closer to launch, if it actually follows through. So yeah, I want to talk about the DARPA XS1 project. So this is actually a couple of weeks old. We've been meaning to talk about it. But it is a proposal by DARPA. Basically, it's for a launch vehicle that can drastically lower the cost and drastically increase the frequency of launches. So right now, the U.S. government has a lot of military satellites it puts up. It has a lot of need for those. And they've seen drastically increased costs. Uh, it's something like $3 billion a year for all of their launch costs to 
continue to support their, you know, the GPS system, spy satellites, different research satellites, etc. So they want to help sponsor the development of a launcher that's dramatically cheaper. They're aiming for less than $5 million per launch, which is insane. Uh, And that the contest requirement is 10 launches in 10 days. So something that you can launch, land, within 24 hours, relaunch consistently. And those are very bold claims, very bold engineering requirements. And so um, they have three, this is a NASA Spaceflight article, they have three uh, main competitors who've done proposals. Boeing, Mason Systems, and Northrop Grumman all have concept vehicles. And most have a lifting body design, similar to the space shuttle, where it would take off and then glide for re-entry. And I just wanted to talk about it because this is a extremely bold proposal, the requirements they put on the companies to develop the system. This is something that we don't see with ULA or Air Space even considering, and they want this to happen relatively soon. Any thoughts? Given the fact that we have you know Blue Origin getting to the edge of space and landing again, and SpaceX repeatedly coming back to Earth and landing their first stage, it's potential that you know this technology could advance rapidly enough that this is a viable deadline if it follows something like uh, Moore's law then who knows it it could be done it seems doubtful from where we're standing today but if it is that would be really really cool to see yeah something that's really interesting is that they want to have a flight test by 2020 so they're talking about a reusable vehicle you can launch and have returned to the launch pad and ready to go within 24 hours for under $5 million within four years. SpaceX with the Falcon 9, which is the most far ahead in being reusable, wouldn't even be able to qualify for this because we're very far away from getting you know a 24-hour turnaround. Even SpaceX's system, where you launch and land on the barge, landing on the barge is going to take too long, so you have to return to launch site, and you need to be able to very, very quickly you know get a stage down, do all the flight checks, put a new second stage on, put the payload on, go. And their second stage is not reusable. And so that loan piece costs more than $5 million. So you can't do a launch service for under $5 million when you still have an expendable part. So it either needs to be completely reusable or you need to have a very, very inexpensive upper stage or pusher stage. And so that's going to be very interesting because it's going to... Basically, the three companies now are all mostly old space, and they're going to have to, you know, catch up to where SpaceX is and then go beyond where SpaceX is planning to be. So that's going to be very impressive if they actually meet the requirements. And so this is looking towards systems that are custom designed for speed, and that's going to be very interesting. Uh, I think the initial design requirement is 900 kilograms to or 900 pounds to orbit so that's a you know a relatively small payload uh and the final version needs 3,000 pounds to to earth orbit so that's you know almost 10 times less than falcon but they're looking to reduce the cost of those small satellites i think part of that has to do with the cubesats showing that you can get a specific scientific objective done for very low cost and at a very small total package size. The article talks about how the GPS satellites, each block is getting massively more expensive. The first GPS block one satellites were $43 million 
1990, and Block 3 GPS satellites, which are going up now, are $250 million U.S. dollars. And when adjusted for inflation, that's still a $170 million increase. So what we're seeing is bigger satellites, more expensive satellites, and what DARPA says is that that is related to launch costs. Because launch costs keep going up and they're so expensive, it makes sense to build satellites that'll last longer, build satellites that can do more, so you can minimize the number of launches. And so I think this is trying to you know, push that curve back down to having smaller satellites more frequently, cheaper launch, and that's going to be a very interesting thing if DARPA can you know, kind of kickstart that and make that capability possible. We could see commercial companies kind of going from those huge geostationary commsats back down to smaller satellites. So you're saying there's a trend towards larger satellites right now, and DARPA's trying to reverse that? Yes. That's interesting because, I don't know, based, based on what I'm doing with SAR and what my company is looking at, it seems like all I've been hearing about are small sats recently, CubeSats and small sats. It's interesting that CubeSats are exploding, small satellites are exploding. But for commercial satellite operators, the people who, you know, launch satellites, they buy a launch for them and they launch constellations or they launch uh, single slot satellites, those have been going up. Uh, the average lifespan now is roughly 15 years, and they're trying to push that farther when back in the 80s and 90s it was close to five to seven years. Now, part of that is solar electric propulsion, which lets them use a smaller amount of fuel that lasts longer. So you can have it be uh, keep it station keeping for 15 years instead of having, you know, a bipropellant fuel system that is not as efficient and will run out. Also, electronics become uh, cheaper, more dense. You can put more transponders on the satellite for the same amount of power. That's a really critical factor. And so we've seen commercial uh, comm satellites vastly increase. If you look at the space shuttle, uh, during the early days when it was doing commercial flights, it was launching two to three commercial satellites in its payload bay. Uh, now you're, we're seeing uh, commercial commsats, one, maybe two, launched in a Falcon 9 kind of fairing. So they are getting physically lar larger, heavier, having more transponders, more power requirements, and longer life. Well, in terms of what we are capable of as technology improves, I think that DARPA has the right idea. I think there will be a return to small sats and a much larger commercial influx of small sats. There are so many startups nowadays that are getting into space, and it, it's cool to see, but hopefully the uh, this whole program will reduce the cost of getting to space. Yeah, I think it's really cool. You see... SpaceX with Falcon 1 was originally serving that s small satellite market, and they've quickly moved out of that. Falcon 9 is a medium lift launcher. It's now, with all the upgrades, is kind of a uh, almost a heavy lift launcher. So the, it's a, such a high payload. But now you see um, something like Firefly Aerospace and the Electron rocket, which are Falcon 1 sized rockets that are designed for, you know, a 100-kilogram satellite or a bunch of small CubeSats. And so that's kind of a, a part of the market that hasn't really existed. There hasn't been a lot of flights there. And so now there's more craft going up. They see a demand for individual launches. There was some news on the ULA front 
the path to their Vulcan uh, launch vehicle is now clear, as the article on Satellite Today points out, meaning that they have all of the RD-180 engines on contract ordered to support launches until Vulcan is ready. So, you might have mentioned this before, but Vulcan is their next-generation launch vehicle. It is going to use either Blue Origin BE-4 Methalox engines on its first stage, made in America, or a wholly new Aerojet Rocketdyne AJ-1 engine. So, they still haven't selected which one they're going to use. Uh, the BE-4 is the preferred engine, but they haven't downselected yet. But that's a transfer away from Russian-built engines, the RD-180, which there's been a lot of uh, controversy over and potential disruptions to the supply line, where they're built in Russia. I think they're also built in Ukraine, maybe. I can't Google right now. But they're built in a country that may have hostile or lukewarm relations to the U.S., and the U.S. government, Congress, has been asking ULA to transfer over from Russian-built engines to domestic engines. So they have officially signed the contract that says Russia will give them all the engines they need for launches until Vulcan is ready, which means in 2019, I believe, they will switch to Vulcan with its new first stage and eventually a new second stage in 2022. Hmm. Well, it's always exciting to see new launch vehicles. Yes, smart reuse. And that's going to be interesting because it uses a little bit of old school tech and a little bit of uh, cutting edge tech. Now, back when uh, the very first spy satellites took actual film photographs, and in order to use these images, they actually put those film in return canisters, and those capsules deorbited and had parachutes and we picked them out of the sky with airplanes skyhook yes we did this a bunch of times and that's how we got uh spy images before we could digitize them and send them wirelessly so that technology has already been done before now uh, doing this with engines it's going to be much heavier so that's an engineering challenge but the concept has been proven the thing that is cutting edge is that they want to use an inflatable supersonic heat shield. So this is something that uh, JPL is actually working on, NASA is working on. Uh, they've been doing a inflatable supersonic tech demonstrator, which is a disc that can inflate and they have a uh, malleable heat shield material. And that way you can have a much greater heat shield area than the diameter of your craft. So say you're going to Mars or you're trying to air break through Jupiter, and you have a two-meter-wide spacecraft because that's how big your launch rocket was. If you increase that heat shield area, you can increase drag, you can reduce heat load, and so if you can inflate and increase that surface area, you can have a much gentler re-entry. Um, so they've been doing two tests, and they had issues with the parachutes, uh, parachute failures on both of those. So NASA's working to refine that, but that would be uh, a key technology for smart reuse, would be an inflatable heat shield because it's going uh, at a hypersonic speed when it detaches from the rocket body. So it needs to you know, bleed off a lot of that excess energy and then pop a chute to get picked up out of the sky. Last up, we have some news about SpaceX. 
they successfully launched the Commercial Resupply Mission 9 to the ISS. This brings the International Docking Adapter 2, which is the sister adapter to the one lost on CRS-7 last summer. Uh, uh, the IDA-2 is being installed probably before this goes out. Uh, and then the IDA-3, which is a replacement made from spare parts, will be launching on CRS-9 next year. Now, these two ports will let visiting crewed spacecraft uh, dock with the ISS and for crew to access the station right now, uh, Dragon uses what's called the Common Berthing Mechanism, which is a passive docking system where Dragon gets close to the ISS, it's grabbed by a robotic arm, pushed up against a CBM port on the ISS, and astronauts have to physically bolt the Dragon spacecraft to the station. So it was designed for modules to be attached to the station, but the IDA is converting between the shuttle docking adapter to a new adapter that uh, both SpaceX Dragon and Boeing Starliner will use. And so that lets the crafts autonomously dock. It's active or passive, uh, depending. And it's a little bit smaller. It's designed for people and not cargo and science racks. Another bit of exciting news is that the JCSAT-14 Falcon Core was brought to McGregor and had three full-duration static fires back-to-back uh, -back over three uh, consecutive days. And so uh, JCSAT was a geostationary satellite launch, so it came. It was one of the most energetic and hard-to-stick landings for Falcon yet, so it had uh, apparently heavy damage cosmetically, we don't know. Uh, what kind of structural damage it might have. But SpaceX said that that would be the kind of structural loss leader for the fleet. It was the most damaged the first time, so they're going to test it until it fails. And so they did uh, full-duration static fires, which are the full 150, 180-second burns that the rocket would do in space. Now, every core that they launch first goes to McGregor, does a full duration test before going to Florida or Vandenberg. This is a returned booster and they did it once every day. So they did basically three mock launches for the first stage within 24 hours of time, trying to push the stage to the edge, see what kind of, what engines might fail, uh, what happens to the tankage when you're you know, filling it with cryogenic fuel and then unfilling it quickly. So uh, it's off the test stand now because there is a new core for an upcoming mission that needs to be tested. Uh, rumor has it that it might get put back onto the test stand after to get a couple more tests in. We don't know yet, but it's very exciting that a piece of hardware that went to space that re-entered, put on the full stresses, was able to be fired for three more mission durations without failing. Well, exciting progress for SpaceX, and we will continue to watch and eventually get to see a reuse. Yeah, and the current estimated launch date is sometime in October for our reuse booster. We don't know which uh, customer. Um, Hans Konisman uh, from SpaceX 
said in the post CRS9 news briefing that they had talks with a customer, like final talks. So when that all gets locked down, they might announce it pretty soon. So we'll have a customer and date for the first reused orbital booster. You've been listening to SpecsCast. News. July. Roundup. Awesomeness. Thanks for listening to SpecsCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. Reach out to us and tell us what you like. Do you want to see more technical things? Do you want to see more news? It'll really help us develop the show. We're still working on uh, a couple other episodes for you guys this summer as part of our Specs Summer Series from SpecsCast. So look out for that. We'll announce everything from our Twitter page at RIT Specs, and we'll be posting stuff to Facebook at facebook.com slash RIT Specs. Our music is by Kevin Hartnell, and this has been SpecsCast. Cast.